So that's the story of Jonah. Kind of a review from last week and looking forward to what we're going to share this morning. By the way, that little video, very cute, very well done. It was done by a youth group in a church in Australia and very, very well done. So welcome to our summer cruising series. Um, this morning, uh, we are going uh, throughout the summer. We've been looking at stories from the Bible that take place on oceans and lakes and rivers. And I'm looking forward. In two weeks, uh, two weeks from today, I'll be doing the last one. It'll be on the River of Life from Revelation 22. So I'm excited about that one. But today we're looking at the second half of this amazing story that we find in the book of Jonah. Uh, We'll be looking at chapters 3 and 4 today, but let's review what we looked at last week from chapters 1 and 2. So Jonah was commanded uh, by God to go to Nineveh. And remember, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, and Assyria were the mortal enemies of the Israelites. So when he told uh, Jonah to go to the Ninevites, it was a very, very difficult thing for Jonah to hear. Uh, In fact, the message that he was supposed to give the Ninevites was basically... Uh, turn or burn, you know, kind of the, uh, the hellfire and brimstone message. And uh, it was kind of a last chance message. And uh, Jonah was supposed to deliver that message to the Ninevites. But because of his hatred for uh, Nineveh, and that hatred would be akin to the, um, the anger and the uh, uh, rancor that is felt between Israelites today and Arabs, uh, uh, that great anger and, and disgust for each other where you don't even acknowledge the other's existence. That's the way that Jonah felt about Nineveh. So what did he do? What every red-blooded um, a young man would do, uh, he ran away from God. Not too bright, because that's kind of hilarious anyway that you would think you could run away from God, but let's give him some slack because you and I have all run away from God at different times, and we know what that's like. So he runs away from God. He gets on a boat to Tarshish. Uh, then he was thrown overboard because of a great storm, swallowed by a great fish. And last week, we didn't spend a lot of time on this, but many people are curious about, well, is, is this just a fantasy or is there such a fish that could actually swallow a man? And we talked about that a little bit last week. There are several species of fish that can swallow a man, and there's been on record that could do that. But the bottom line is that the Bible says God prepared a great fish. So it doesn't even have to be uh, something that we understand. But God prepared a great fish, and Jonah uh, was there for three days and three nights. What do you do when you're in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights? Well, you think, uh, you ponder, you muse, uh, you uh, uh, pray, and that's what Jonah ultimately did. Uh, Seaweed wrapped around his head, the text said, gastric juices all around him. And Jonah prayed to the Lord. Now, there's several things last week that we learned from Jonah's prayer. Let me review those for you quickly. The first is this. When you hit rock bottom, you look up. When you hit rock bottom, you look up. Chapter 2, verse 4 says, I will look again to God. I think Jonah hit rock bottom. You have nowhere else to turn. I have uh, worked with a lot of people, because I've been through it myself, uh, that do 12-step programs. And one of the things that is acknowledged in all of the 12-step programs is the fact that a person cannot really get help until they hit the bottom. When there's no one else to look, you have no resources left in yourself, your own emotional or physical resources, 
Uh, you have nothing left and you simply say, I, I, I'm alone. I'm, I'm unable to help myself. I'm unable to get where I want to be. And therefore, I look unto the Lord. When you hit rock bottom, you look up. Another thing we learned from Jonah's prayer was that deliverance can only come from God. Deliverance can only come from God. In chapter 2, verse 6, it says, But you brought my life up from the pit. You brought my life up from the pit. Now, there's interesting wording there. We didn't look at this last week, but I discovered it this week. Uh, The pit talks about uh, the earth. That Jonah had discovered, and we learned this back when we did our study in James a few months ago, uh, that um, uh, Jonah discovered what we've all discovered, that if we come to believe that the earth, and when I say the earth, I'm not talking about the soil, but the, the system of the world will satisfy our needs, money, sex, power, um, uh, uh, procurements, uh, praise, uh, any of those things. When we discover that the world, what the world has to offer, the world system, is something that will satisfy us, we bend a knee to the earth. And we say, okay, this is what will satisfy me. And that's what Jonah did. I'll be, I'll be satisfied with, with what the earth will provide me. But then we realize that it doesn't provide a sustenance for any length of time. And we, we realize that we're empty and we are hungry. And that the Bible says that G- Jesus himself said that I am the bread of life. Only I can satisfy that hunger. I am the water of life, the river of life. Only I can quench that thirst. And we recognize once again that if we bend a knee to the earth and try to set our, satisfy ourselves from the world, we will fail every single time. But deliverance comes from the Lord. And the third thing we learned from Jonah's prayer was that God is a God of the second chance. Aren't you glad for that? You know, we have in our schools, and I understand why we have it, we have in our schools what we call what? A zero tolerance policy, right? Aren't you glad that God doesn't have that? <laughs> you know, the wages of sin is death. End of story. Close the book. It's all over. You sin, you die. Now, that's what we deserve. We all deserve that. Jonah deserved that. Jonah deserved not to be swallowed by a great fish. He deserved to drown in the depths because of his disobedience and sin. You and I deserve death. The wages of sin is death. But, there's a comma after that, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the God of a second chance. God, I don't deserve a second chance, but he gives me a second chance. And for many of us, a third, a fourth, a 20th, a 90th, a 400th. We have over and over again, God says, I love you enough. I'm going to give you a second chance. Jonah had a second chance. The wages of sin is death. Should be a period there. But God, thank God, Romans 6.23, God puts a comma there. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so that, that was last week. And so Jonah 2.10, the last verse we looked at, and the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah on to dry land. So let's see what happens next in chapters 3 and 4. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. That's interesting. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give to you. So Jonah pardon the expression, is puked up on the beach, covered in seaweed, vomit all around him. And God, and I think God didn't wait until he dried himself off. I think God came to him right then while he was sitting in that mess and said, hey, Jonah, I've got an idea. I know what I'd like you to do. 
I'd like you to go to Nineveh and preach to the people there. Okay? And Nineveh, uh, Jonah said, okay. <laughs> and he got in like the, like the girl in the, in the video complaining all the way. Yeah, go to Nineveh. Yeah, go to Nineveh. Okay, I'll go to... You know, it's just kind of that kind of a deal. It reminds me of when I was a teenager. In fact, I, was, I had just turned 14 years of age. And we had tryouts for the freshman football team. And uh, I had never played sports younger. I mean, we played in the yard and at the park and stuff, but we didn't have any organized sports where I lived. Uh, and so my only chance for organized sports was when I got to high school. So I didn't know if I'd be good enough or anything like that. But the coach told me after a couple of weeks of practice that I was going to be a starter on the freshman football team. And boy, did that feel good. I mean, 14-year-olds need encouragement. Uh, they need good news like that, and that was really good news to me. I was going to be the starting center on the offense and a starting linebacker on defense, and I was so excited and so thrilled. I went home and I told my mother, and she was marginally excited about that. You know, moms in football aren't, you know, because we know, in spite of the fact that you think we wore leather helmets, we didn't. They were actually, uh, you know, plastic, but it wasn't very thick in those days. And my mom wasn't too thrilled, but she knew I was happy. She said, well, I'm glad for you, son. My dad comes home from work and he's excited, you know, and he's glad that I made the team and he's thrilled. But then he quickly uh, throws a kind of a damper over the whole thing. I'm all fired up. I'm feeling good about myself. My dad said, Dwayne, you forgot to do one of your chores. And one of my, I have many chores, like my sisters did. And one of my chores is to take the trash out every day. Family of six, generate a lot of trash every day. Uh, so one of my chores, and my dad said, Dwayne, take out the trash. Now, in those days, my dad was kind of old school. Uh, he didn't say, well, honey, sweetheart, if you're done with your snack, and if it's not too busy, and if you can break your way, uh, yourself away from the television, in a little while, do you think you might take out the trash? Now, now that was, this was old school parenting. Take out the trash. Okay, and that's what he said. Now, my dad must not have gotten the memo of how important I was. I was a freshman football player. I was on the starting team. Out of 200 boys that went out for the team, 60 made it, and only 11 were starters. I was important. I was special. And somehow my dad just really hadn't gotten the whole idea of how important I was. And so I told my dad, I said, now this, we didn't do this in our family. I told my dad, I said, uh, no, when he said take out the trash, but I'll take it out later. I tried to mediate the situation because after all, I was a freshman football player and I was important and I was something special. And uh, after that, um, the rest is kind of blurry. Um, uh, I, I saw out of the corner of my eye a hand coming towards my head. It, it, it was the size of a, a catcher's mitt. My dad was a big man. And, uh, and then there was contact and then fade to black. Okay? And, and a few minutes, my mom said it was only a few minutes later, my mom was kneeling over me, kind of patting my cheeks, and, are you all right? And my dad was leaning over, my three sisters were leaning over with smiles, and, uh, and, and, and finally my dad gets me up, he said, son, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I think so. He said, look at me, make sure your eyes are clear. Yeah, my eyes are clear. Can you hear what I'm saying? Yes, sorry. He said, son, I want you to take out the trash. Take out the trash. And I, and I took out the trash. Now, now now, isn't that human beings? Isn't that you when it comes to God or any kind of authority? I don't want to do it. I'm important. You shouldn't tell me what to do. Kids say that. We as adults say that. We say everybody should obey the speed limits except me, right? And we all have that kind of view towards authority. 
God said a second time to Jonah, sitting in vomit, seaweed draped around his head, Jonah, I've got an idea. I want you to go to Nineveh and tell them the message I will give you. And Jonah said, God, I'd be happy to do that. Now, complaining all the way, I'm sure, but I'd be happy to do that. How often do we do the right thing with the wrong attitude? I think that was Jonah. That was certainly me. Because Jonah had given this pretty wonderful prayer. It's what I call a a belly prayer. (laughs) He'd given this wonderful prayer when he was in the belly of the great fish. And the prayer was sincere, I'm sure. Maybe akin to a a foxhole prayer and a promise. You all have been in positions like that, right? Before where, you know, your world is crumbling and you say, God, if you will get me out of this situation, I will love you and serve you for the rest of my life. I will read my Bible four hours a day. I'll go to church all the time and I'll give $4 a week in my, the offering and I'll just do everything that you want me to do, God. And, and we've all had those kind of prayers. Well, that's maybe what Jonah was doing because Jonah had a pretty neat prayer. He said, in my distress, I called out to the Lord. It's good. When you're in distress, that's who you call out to. And Jonah said, and he answered me, and he listened to my cry. God is always listening for our cry, isn't he? And Jonah even made the right statement. He said, this was on me. This, I was wrong. I, was, I did the wrong thing. I'm, it's my bad. I, I deserved ban- banishment. He said that in his prayer, so that was good. In his prayer, he said, but Lord, you gave me life. He acknowledged that life comes from God, no one else. He said, Lord, I remembered you. I, I, and I promise you, it won't happen again. Again, that, 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 that foxhole prayer and promise, mm, it'll never happen again. Oh, how many times did I pray to the Lord? I promise God I will never, ever go to the casino again. Ever. But you gave me life, Jonah's prayer was. I remembered you. I promised that it'll never happen again. And then Jonah said, you are my only hope in salvation. Now, again, I'm pretty sure Jonah's heart was very sincere when he was in the belly of the great fish. When you're in a tough situation, your prayer is very sincere. You mean it. You mean it. I will always love you, God, if you just get me out of this jam, if you get me out of this circumstance. So the story picks up with Jonah obeying God. Good move. Now, the Bible says that Jonah went to the center of town about a day's journey. Now, it says that uh, you can't get from one side of Nineveh in less than three days. Now, that's walking, okay? It was big. That's bigger than Chandler. And uh, so it was a large city. And can you imagine he walked for a day, 24-hour day. He walked for a day to get to the center of Nineveh. And uh, can you imagine what was going on as he was walking through Nineveh? People say, who's this guy? Oh, he's that, uh, he's that Jewish kid. He's supposed to be some kind of a prophet. Well, what's he doing here? I mean, can you imagine, um, uh, uh, you know, a Jewish rabbi walking through Baghdad by himself? What would happen or what would people would say or do? I mean, Jonah's walking through and everybody's pointing a finger at him. Everybody's laughing and he gets to the center of town and then he delivers the message that God wanted him to deliver. That turn and burn message, that fire and brimstone message. He said, 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Now, the Ninevites have heard this before. All Assyrians have heard this before. Because other prophets had spoken to, to Assyria, right? So we know that they've heard this message that Yahweh, Jehovah, the one and only true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh 
is displeased with you. You're following pagan gods. Get rid of your pagan gods and turn to me. That's the message they heard before. But somehow, mysteriously, majestically, miraculously, this message was heard and believed. The Ninevites believed God. That one little simple verse in chapter 3, the Ninevites believed God. Now that word believe in the Hebrew is, uh, the way that's translated in the Greek is the word pistuo, which means to cling to, to rely on, to grasp or grip and hold tight. So this wasn't just, well, I'm throwing over my pagan gods because Yahweh seems more powerful and more wonderful and maybe he's a little bit nicer. No, it wasn't that at all. It was literally casting aside your pagan gods and embracing wholeheartedly this God of the Hebrews. Remember, not only were the Assyrians mortal enemies of the Israelites, the Israelites were mortal enemies of the Assyrians. And the Assyrians are saying, we're going to throw over our pagan gods for this Hebrew God. And they did it. Miraculously, amazingly, they did it. The Bible says they put on sackcloth and ashes, which is a sign of sorrow and repentance. And even the king took off his royal robes. And the royal robes were a symbol of his authority. And what he's doing when he takes off the royal robes and put on sackcloth and ashes, what he's saying is, I am, I am turning my authority over to the God of the Hebrews. I'm turning over all my authority to this Jehovah, this Yahweh guy that I believe now, miraculously, I believe is the one true God. And I embrace, I pistuo, I believe, I hold on to the fact that this God is the one true God. Listen to these words in chapter 3, verses 7 to 10. This is the declaration or the proclamation by uh, the king. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may, not, may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will ha- not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, when it says how they turned from their evil ways, it means literally that God looked into their hearts. I love that. When God looked into their hearts, He had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction He had threatened. God saw their hearts. Now what can we learn from this? There's a couple of things that the Lord put on my heart this week that I think this text really gets at. The first is this. For us, this is application now. God wants us, you and I, to change our heart towards our enemies. God wants to change your heart, my heart, towards your enemies. Jonah felt entitled. He was a Hebrew. God's chosen people. He was educated. He was a prophet of the living God. He had all of the entitlement in his life. And there is no way, Lord, 
I'll go and talk to a group of Hebrews that are misbehaving. You know, maybe they're hanging out at the bars or something like that. I'll go and talk to them. I'll go preach to them. But the Ninevites, they do not deserve you, Yahweh. They do not deserve your love, your grace, and your mercy. And I will not go to them. Jonah was still under the belief that there were people, groups, clans, tribes that were not worthy of God. Sherry uh, has uh, her sister, Andra, is married to David, been married for many years. And uh, David was a, um, uh, a military guy. He spent many years in the Navy, uh, ascended to a high rank. And then when he retired, now he is doing, he's an engineer and uh, very brilliant. And uh, so he's a typical military guy. And I love these guys, even though I wasn't one myself. I mean, he's He's hawkish, you know, when it comes to things like that and very right, right wing. And that's kind of his bent. And, you know, uh, uh, so it was interesting when I found out he told me that he had met a guy at work who was um, from Bangladesh, an Indian man. His name was Milton. I can't pronounce his last name, but uh, Milton and his wife, Femina. And so David, a wonderful Christian man, even though there's the sense that those people, you know, the Muslims, they're the ones that did the 9-11 thing and they're the ones that want to kill all Christians. You know, we generalize things very poorly. And, you know, there's kind of that feeling that in spite of some of those feelings inside of David, he felt God calling him to be the friend, friends with Milton. And so he became a friend with Milton. Andra uh, became a friend with uh, Femina. And for the last 10 years... Uh, they have loved this family. They have three children. They have loved this family um, into the light of Christ. Um, they worked with them. They invited them to their house for Christmas, for holidays. One, a couple of years ago, on a Thanksgiving, Sherry and I were over in San Diego, and we joined David and Andrew for Thanksgiving, and there was Milton and Femina and their children, and we all sat around and talked about how thankful to God we were for all that he had provided. Now, the children have all given their hearts to Christ. Recently, Milton and Femina have decided to go to church with David and Andra, and they believe, and we believe, that it's just a matter of time before Milton and Femina say yes to Jesus. And, um, see, this isn't a Muslim. This is a man and his wife and three children for whom Jesus died. This is a family that have different color skin than many of us, that um, have different traditions and habits than many of us, but a family that they literally are loving into the kingdom. I believe with all my heart, friends, and this is a challenge for you and for me, that God wants us to change our hearts towards our enemies. People that have different colored skin, people that have different races, religions, different sexual orientations. God wants us to be in their lives and love them until they ask why. Love them and love them and love them until they ask why. You see, the Christian religion is the only religion where we are commanded to love our enemies. No other religion dares go there. <laughs> they know they're smart enough that you can tell somebody that they're supposed to love their enemies, but the reality is that person is not going to love their enemies because that's not the human nature. And we know that too. But God doesn't care about our human nature. 
He already died for that human nature. Jesus on the cross, and he wants us to love our enemies. And I don't know who a Ninevite is for you. I don't know who that enemy is for you, but here's the truth of this word. Jonah, go and give them my message. David Andra, go and give Milton and Fomina my message. Dwayne and Sherry, go and give them my message. Now, friends, this is not, um, please believe me, this is not a noble idea. This is the Word of God. And if you don't like it, I understand that, but you need to understand that this is God's message to you, whether you like it or not, whether you believe it or not. And a challenge is this. Stop seeing people as them. Stop seeing other people groups as those people those Muslims, uh, those gays, those whatever, Mormons. Stop seeing people that way. Get to know someone and love them until they ask you why. This is the Word of God. And we are called to do it. So one of the things that we learn from this amazing story is that God wants you and I to change our heart towards our enemies. And another thing He wants us to know is this, that God can use an imperfect vessel Now, what do I mean by that? Well, God used Jonah when his heart wasn't right. Twice God told Jonah to go and give his message to the Ninevites. The first time his heart was totally disobedient. And even after his heart was obedient, he still had the wrong heart towards his enemies. But God still used that broken and cracked vessel to do his word. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4, 7. Now we have this light shining in our hearts. What light is that? The light of Jesus Christ is shining in your heart. If you're a believer, that's the truth. You don't have to recognize or even believe it. The shine, the Jesus Christ is shining in your heart if you're a believer. Now we have this light shining in our hearts, comma, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. Here's what this means. We have this amazing, perfect Good news, the light of Jesus Christ in us, and it's contained in this imperfect vessel. Imperfect physically, emotionally, spiritually. This imperfect vessel that we call our bodies, our lives, our souls. It's imperfect. But God says, don't think you have to wait until you're perfect to be my messenger. Too many people say, well, I'm not going to tell my friends about Jesus because I still have bad habits. Well, you know what? <laughs> you're a cracked vessel. You're cracked. You know, and you already know that. And, and God still, his light shines out of you even with the cracks in that vessel. I can't tell you how many times I preached, and I preached with faith believing the gospel of Jesus Christ to my congregation at Roseville Covenant Church. I did this for two and a half years where I preached to them and I knew the deceptiveness of my own heart because I was gambling. I knew it. But somehow, some way, God took this broken, cracked vessel and people were still saved during those two and a half years. God wants to use you. And He doesn't want you to wait around until you're okay. Wait around until you're fixed. Wait around until you know enough. God wants to use you now. This light shining in our hearts, even though we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. God saved Nineveh because of His amazing mercy and because of their repentance, even though Jonah's heart was not yet new. Then listen to what happens next in chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. Isn't that... Amazing. This, by the way, 
these uh, four, these three verses are, is somewhat one of the most phenomenal, puzzling passages in all the Bible. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. They just had a revival. 120,000 Ninevites said yes to God. They were now trusting in and literally obeying Jehovah. He prayed to the Lord, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Translation. 120,000 Ninevites are now on equal plane with the Hebrews. (laughs) They're mortal enemies who they hate, they despise, they wish they would never exist. They, they, They take it back to Ishmael and say, yeah, it's Ishmael and all of his Arab forefathers. That's what should be wiped out from the face of the earth. And God saved these people. And Jonah is a whiny crybaby because of it. Jonah says, I knew it. (laughs) I knew that you were a compassionate God. I knew that you had mercy. And I knew if for a moment I would go and give the message to the Ninevites, I knew that you would do something crazy like this and you would save those people. It's just not fair. It's not right. I'm a Hebrew. I'm religious. I'm special. I'm a prophet. And it's not fair that they have the same grace that I do. It's just not fair. Now, before we're too hard on Jonah, we do the same thing. We think we're special. We think we're God's chosen people, and we are. And somehow we think we're above uh, those people, those four and a half billion people in the world who are not saved, who are not Christians. Maybe it's five billion, but at least four and a half billion people in the world who do not. But every one of them, just like Milton and Femina, are people for whom Jesus died. Every one of them. In Borneo, in Colombia, everywhere in the world, every one of them are people for whom Jesus died. Jonah says, I knew you were compassionate. I told you so, God. And so he whined and cried and he said, I, I, I just hope that God will take my life. Oh, poor me. I mean, what good is my salvation if these idiots can be saved as well? I'm better than that. I'm better than them. I remember... Um, back in September of 97, when I uh, started getting my help and recovery from my addiction to gambling, um, one of the things the conference superintendent told me he wanted me to do, besides getting personal counseling, was to go to GA, Gamblers Anonymous, which I was happy to do. Well, actually, which I did. <laughs> it's two different things. I was kind of like Jonah. Okay, go to Gamblers Anonymous. Okay, and just whining all the way. And, and I went there, and the reason I was whining is because uh, I knew I was better than these people. These people are losers. I mean, they're not believers. I found out later that wasn't true. Many of them were. Some weren't. Uh, they're not believers. These people are losers who have lost their families and lost their money and lost their integrity and all of that. And I, these people are losers. So I went in with that kind of an attitude. By the end, two hours later, by the end of the meeting, I thought to myself as I was leaving, I said, these are my people. <laughs> these are people that are desperately broken, who've lost control of everything that they really held to be 
life-giving. And I just, I just am like them completely. For the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If, if, friends, if you don't hear anything else this morning, please hear this. We are not saved because we are civilized. We are not saved because we are good citizens or because we're middle class or because we're religious or because we're non-barbaric. We are saved if we have a broken heart that we are literally broken over the own sinfulness of our soul. We are saved if we are filled with repentance that we want to turn away from our wicked life and turn towards God. And we are saved if we have absolute surrender to God. There is nothing left I have to save myself and I completely and totally surrender myself to God. That's how you're saved. No other way. No other way. Don't ever believe that you are saved because you are a Hebrew or an American or a Christian or anything else. Ninevites cannot be saved. Muslims cannot be saved. Buddhists cannot be saved. Gays cannot be saved. The Bible is clear. We are saved by the brokenness of our heart, by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and no other way. And that gift is for everyone who will believe. Everyone. So back to our story. Question God asks Jonah, are you, do you have any right to be angry? This is, this is really, this next part is really interesting in the story. I'm not going to read it. You can read it, but I'll, I'll kind of paraphrase it. Um, how many of you have seen the commercials Messing with Sasquatch? Okay, those are great commercials. Pay attention. I know that I try to avoid commercials, but when that one's on, I love it. And this is Messing with Jonah. <laughs> this is Yahweh Messing with Jonah, right? So Jonah's sitting there. He goes up on a mountaintop overlooking Nineveh. And the reason he does that is so he can whine by himself. He's, you know, and I'm sure God says, you want a little cheese with that? And, and, and he's up there, up there, folding his hands, his arms over his chest and saying, God, maybe you will still repent of your repenting. <laughs> maybe you'll still crush these people like they deserve to be crushed. Maybe you'll nuke them. And I'm just going to wait here, God, until you realize the, the error of your way and you stop trying to save these people and you send them all to hell where they belong. Okay, I'm going to wait. And then he just gets up on the hill and waits. The problem is it's hot. Now, we're talking about, uh, you know, Mediterranean climate, you know, the hot and the humid and all of that. And it's hot. And so he starts whining about how hot it is. And so this is God messing with Jonah. So God, the Bible says, he allows a little vine to grow over him to provide him shade. There's no shade there. So this vine grows up. And I say, well, how does that happen? Well, God created a fish to swallow Jonah. So a vine's easy. So a vine grows up and covers Jonah and he's got shade. And the Bible says that um, uh, Jonah was very happy. That is so remarkable a verse. Now, the, the Hebrew phrase for that very happy means that he was beside himself with joy. Okay, now, okay, messing with Jonah. So now he's happy. He's, he's thrilled. He's ha- he can watch uh, the splendor of Nineveh being uh, blown to pieces if that's what God does. And so he's happy. And he's got this, you know, seat right on the 50-yard line. It's just awesome. And, and, then, and then a worm comes and eats the vine. And an east wind comes and blows hot air on him. And he's thirsty and he's hungry. And Jonah's very sad. Poor Jonah. 
And he says, I want to die. And in Hebrew, again, that phrase is that he's depressed and suicidal. A minute ago, he was happy because of the vine. Now he wants to die because of the vine is dead. So, Jonah, what you're telling me is that your happiness is all about your personal physical comfort. Is that what you're telling me? Jonah, everything isn't about you. (laughs) Everything is not about you. Now, the juxtaposition in this story is fascinating to me. Here we have 120,000 souls who desperately need Yahweh. They need Jehovah. They need to be saved. 120,000 sinful, wicked, evil people. And that's the Assyrians were all of those things. And, and all those people are going to die without God. And there's 120,000. So we have that in balance with, over here, Jonah's physical comfort. Now again, Before we're too hard on Jonah, we do the same thing. We do the same thing. Somehow, we have come to believe that our physical comfort, our middle classness, our homes and cars and jobs and friends and everything, that's all good and fine and that's all fine. But we've come to believe that that is a much, much higher priority than the Ninevites that we know. The 120,000 people that are far from God, that need Jesus Christ desperately, and our physical comfort is much more important than them. I I was, um, my senior year of high school, I was the president, we used to call it, of the Youth for Christ Club on our campus, Granite Hills High School. And we had a couple hundred kids that, it was a large school, we had a couple hundred kids that uh, went to that. We met 7 o'clock on a, I forget what day, 7 7.45 once a week, and it was Youth for Christ Club, it later became Campus Life Club, but it was Christians who met together. We worshipped and prayed and talked, and it was great. And uh, it was my domain. It was where I was comfortable. It was like church on campus. It was where I was safe. And I was somewhat of a celebrity because not only was I a Christian, I was also on the football team. So it was kind of like that was my, my place. It was where I felt the best about myself and until my number one nemesis from the football team uh, came at somebody's invitation to Youth for Christ. Now, I say he was a nemesis because um, he was better than me, and I didn't like that. And several times in practice, we got together, in a, we, we got in a fight. Now, when you get in a fight uh, at, on a practice field, our coach did, he, he drew a circle, a six-foot diameter circle, and he put both of you in there with your pads and helmets, and he basically let you go, and all the rest of the team stood around you, and you would, and there were no rules. You could grab the face mask, you could punch, you could do kick, you could do whatever, because you're not going to really get hurt that much with all the gear on. And you would do that until somebody was thrown out of the circle. And then that person was declared the loser. The one, again, this is old school, you know. We didn't give trophies to everybody because they finished 12th place. And, uh, and so, you know, and, and so that was the winner. And then the coach said, it's over. Okay, it's over. Which meant that you too, if you ever do this again, you're kicked off the team. Or if we find that you get in a fight after school, you're kicked off the team. So that was, that was our coach. So this guy was the one that I had really hated. And he was the one I'd been in the circle with and all of that. Well, some people brought him to Youth for, uh, to youth for Christ. And I was furious. This, this, and I didn't say anything because I was pretty shy, but this is my turf. 
Go to your own turf. He was a sinner and a bad guy, a bad kid. He did bad stuff, drugs and all that stuff. But I was a good kid. And I deserved this place. And this was my space. And leave me alone. And, and I wish that he had have gone away, but he kept coming. And, and eventually, well, you know the rest of the story. This kid gave his heart to Christ. And he and I became really good friends. But, oh, he was my Ninevite. And I hated him. When are we going to um, get beyond our personal comfort or convenience or success or prosperity and face the one thing that matters more than breath, the one thing that matters more than life, and that's to do anything in our power to reach one more for Jesus. See, the very core value of our church, the very highest value that we have as a church is to do everything in our power to reach one more for Jesus. That's why many Sundays we have a call to come to Christ. That's why we constantly are reaching out to the Navajo and to others to do everything we can to reach one more for Christ. We have, um, after the service, those of you that are interested can hear about our search for the associate pastor. And we want your feedback. But when we first started meeting, Stacy's the chair. There's uh, seven or eight of us on the team. Um, we started talking about, well, what do we want this person the, the, the most important thing that this person has to bring to the table. And of course, there's a lot of good things, but all of us were in agreement that this person above everything else, no matter what gifts and skills they had, they had to have a passion for the lost. Why? Because that's what our church is about. That's what I'm about. That's what the leadership of our church is about. That's what our staff is about. A passion of physical pain when we see somebody that's far from God and they refuse Jesus' love, a physical pain around them. And it's a, of all the attributes we want for our associate pastor, that has to be the most important. A literal passion for the lost. See, it goes beyond just wanting someone to know Jesus, but a heart for those who are marginalized or discarded or disregarded or hated, like the Ninevites. Let me ask you a question. This is going to hurt some of us, but let me ask you this question anyway. Is your desire to see the lost and broken people in the world come to Christ greater than your personal comfort? It's not my question. This is God's question to Jonah. Is your desire to see the lost and broken people in the world come to Christ greater than your personal comfort? Does your time reflect that? Your prayer life, your checkbook? For seven years, we started out um, seven years ago. Patty Carroll and David uh, Hillis and myself and one other person who was the chairman, the, a trustee at the time, his name was Dennis. The four of us went up to the Navajo to meet with Roy Begay, the pastor there, and see if we could have a partnership of ministry seven years ago. We've been back uh, 20-some times now. And I'll tell you why we go back. We're not everything. We can't be everything to the Navajo people, but we do know this, that the Jesus that has saved me and the Jesus that makes my life real is the same Jesus that wants to save those beautiful people, 95% of whom are not Christians. And we keep going back. And we keep going back. We have a ministry to the Jacob's Journey House and Sometimes we think we minister to them and then most of the time we realize that <laughs> they minister to us. Now, society says to some of the people at Jacob's Journey, because some of them have struggled with addictions and, 
and homelessness and things like that. Uh, society says that uh, they're Ninevites. They're not really worthy of God's grace and mercy. Well, they've had their chance. Now, we, we've preached to them before, and, and these people, they, they, they're not worthy, but uh, don't tell that to Carol Greenlaw or Doug Carroll or Scott Tonkinson or any number of people in our church that love them until they ask why. We have a ministry to Streetlight. These young girls, as young as 13, stolen from the streets of Phoenix and pressed into prostitution. And we say, well, why don't they just run away? And we have all of these absurd questions that we say instead of saying, you know what? There's a ministry to these girls to help save them and get them off the street. And we feel passionate about that because, well, you know what? Whatever we can do to reach one more for Jesus. And we have Joyce Vogt and Jesse Wallace and a whole human trafficking team that says, you know, we're committed to this. So let me ask you this question as we close. Who, who is your Nineveh? What person or group or people group do you have deep in your heart a problem with? See, God wants us to um, do just what Jonah did. Maybe obey at the first step. It's not the whole thing. But we have to get deep inside, beyond the obeying. And we have to get to that core of us that says somehow I'm better than somebody else. And that's somebody else. How can they receive the same grace that I do? Because I, I, I go to church and I read my Bible and I do the right things. Who is your Ninevite? God wants to change my heart. God wants to change your heart towards those who are discarded and marginalized and disregarded and hated. And God wants to make a new day, not only in our church, in our community, but in our world. Is your desire to see the lost and broken come to Christ greater than your personal comfort? Would you bow your heads with me, please, as we close?